through the juniors to go out with their teachers and for the seniors and all of us stay in our seats and if you could open up your bulletins and take out an outline I would uh, appreciate that I do want to make just one other announcement I just want you all to know that a year ago on this day uh, our worship leader Steve came to visit Shuva he came to visit Shuva. And what I had said to him the week before is, why don't you come and see? He came, he saw, he loved, he conquered. I don't know, anyway, the Lord conquered him. So it's great. And then, his, then he brought one of his, I think, you, I don't know if you brought one of your children the first day, then you brought another one the second time. And then his faithful, loving Misty came also on our wonderful day. Jewish holiday of Yom HaShoah and how she agreed to ever come back. Who knows? But God spoke to her heart and it's great that they are here with us. Great. Thank you guys. Okay. So if you have your bulletins, open them up, take out an outline. And um, we are, we are still in the midst of the Jewish evangelism seminar. We're going to take two weeks off for the special Jewish holidays that we have today. When I come to this day, uh, when I, as a Jewish person, before I became a believer, when I used to hear Palm Sunday, I cringed. I didn't like it. It was not Jewish. I had trouble with it. As a believer, I started realizing how Jewish this holiday is. And I'll get to that in a minute. When I think of this holiday, though, I always go back and think of my heroes growing up. Who were my heroes? Um, my hero in football was a guy probably most of you don't know. He came from Detroit. Why? I, you know, I'll never know. A football player, a guy by the name of Bobby Lane. Some of you old timers might remember Bobby Lane. He was a great, great quarterback. No one should know him. That's, that's okay. It doesn't matter. He was great, and he was one of my heroes. My other hero was Mickey Mantle. Big names in the news, and I, I just love these guys. Another, uh, Philadelphia, I had my basketball hero was Wilt Chamberlain. So I had all these heroes. And finally, as I got older, I started finding out my heroes were womanizers, alcoholics, drug addicts, criminals. I, these are my heroes. I just, I just couldn't believe it. You know, these have been, now, today, at least, you know, we have a, a hero to look up to right now. We haven't heard anything bad about Tebow. We're all excited. That's good. He's one of us, and he's good, and the media hasn't destroyed him yet. So we're real happy. I'm, I'm happy with Tebow. Um, so, so what I'm trying to say is there's heroes in the, the limelight that sometimes are true heroes and sometimes they're not so many heroes. But then there's some people that we don't hear of that are heroes in God's eyes. Now, in the Bible, we know heroes. You know, Abraham is a hero. He should be. I mean, he did things wrong. He lied and not too many other things. At times, he didn't trust the Lord. But Abraham is a hero in the Bible. Isaac, Jacob, they're all portrayed as heroes in Hebrews chapter 11. We got other women heroes. We got Sarah. We got Esther. She's a hero. Okay. We Ruth. Great, great, great. These are heroes or heroines. You're not allowed to say that anymore. They're all heroes. They're all the same. Everyone's the same. Anyway, but um, we're not going to get political here. So uh, we have heroes in the Bible. Tremendous heroes as you, as you go through. People we should look up to. And the Daniels and the Josephs and King David, even though they do wrong. But they are heroes. Then we get modern day heroes that I like to think about. You know, some of the people that I learned from. The Charles, uh, the uh, uh, John Walford from Dallas Seminary. And we got Howard Hendricks. And maybe some of you don't know them. D.L. Moody was a great hero. We loved D.L. Moody. And you find out George Whitfield. You find out some great Bible heroes modern day heroes but then there's the people who are truly heroes and women heroes that you don't hear of 
You know know something? You'll never hear of those heroes until we get to heaven. Then all of a sudden you say, them? And God says, yeah, that's one. Behind the scenes, you didn't know what they were doing. All they did was pray all the time. All they did is sacrificially give. All they did was serve, and you never knew. Because they're like what I like to call the unknown heroes that we never hear of. Chosen people, I told you, I think I told you last year, chosen people one day, our secretaries in, in the headquarters, you know, people give to the ministry of chosen people. And, uh, and the chosen people is the organization that helped birth Shuva. They asked me to come out. And so Shuva is now an independent congregation separate from chosen people, though I'm involved with both. But, uh, but they get envelopes every week. And that has gifts in there. And there's $5 gifts, dollar gifts, $10 gifts, all nice gifts, 100 200 They get gifts all the time, the secretaries. And can you imagine if you're a secretary and tells people, and you open up an envelope and you see $1,000, they, they freak out. They cheer. They're so excited, you know, into our ministry. So a couple of years ago, one of the people in Chosen People opened up an envelope, a secretary, and said, this can't be real. It's a joke. $1.2 in a check. No one knew. No, one's, no announcements. So, of course, they had a check-in. It was good. The check was good. So, of course, our chosen people, some of our big donor relations people, they went to visit this person in Chicago to see their mansion, to see their great, great place. And they lived in a little hut, a little nothing. They just saved all their money and gave to chosen people ministries. They give to the quiet, unknown heroes of the faith. You see, God sees everything we do. He knows your heart. You can trick us. You can't trick him. And the amazing thing is one day we'll stand. It's what we call in in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the judgment seat of Messiah. That's when believers are judged. Now, let me tell you, if you make the judgment seat of Messiah and you're judged, no one of you is going to hell. You're all made it. But you are judged for your works and how you served him. And you get rewards in heaven. So we look to that day. But... But this, and so God knows your heart. So what I'm talking about today is what I call the unknown heroes. And the reason I bring that up is because tomorrow, the whole world, really what I like to think, celebrates the unknown Messiah. Now, of course, to believers, they know who it is. But it's really, in a sense, the unknown. In Washington, I remember growing up, I don't know if they still do it. I haven't seen it a lot of times. But I remember growing up as a kid in Washington every year, they celebrated what we call the unknown soldier. You, know, you always hear the big heroes that get the Congressional Medals of Honor and the Silver Stars and all that. But in, there's a ceremony, I think, in Arlington Cemetery where they honor the unknown soldier that nobody knows. And I like to think that's what tomorrow really is. It's the unknown Messiah, at least to my Jewish people. And that's what they, tomorrow they celebrate Palm Sunday. We're Messianic. We do it on Saturday. So we call it Palm Shabbat. It really was tomorrow. But we're celebrating it and we're talking about it today. Palm Shabbat or Palm Sunday. Now, when I say that, sometimes the people say, is it Jewish? This holiday is so Jewish. And I like to think I'm taking it back. It's mine. This holiday speaks about the Jewish Messiah. It speaks about the old covenant scriptures. It speaks about the prophetic word of the Bible from the Tanakh. It, has, it just rings of everything Jewish to Jewish people. And that's what I'd like to talk about for a few minutes is what I like to call the unknown Messiah. If you have your outlines, I want you to take them out. And I want you to fill certain things out there. How we recognize, how to recognize the true Messiah. 
My Jewish people today do not recognize him. They don't know who the Messiah is. The Jewish people, if they get anything interested, if they're all interested, they say, who is the Messiah? How do we recognize him, the Messiah? In fact, let me tell you this. There have been many false messiahs throughout the ages. And if you say to the Jewish people who are interested, most are not, how do you recognize the Messiah? Well, you know, false messiahs, we've had a few. In the 90s, there was uh, Schneerson. He was the uh, Lubavitch uh, rabbi in, in New York. And his followers proclaimed him the Messiah. He never proclaimed himself the Messiah. He passed away. And his followers were waiting for him to be resurrected. He hasn't been yet. So it's now been almost 20 years. But he hasn't been resurrected. But they proclaimed him the Messiah. Throughout history, there was one Messiah a couple centuries ago. Rabbi uh, Tzvi was a, a predicted Messiah. They said he was the Messiah. So then finally, the Muslims got a hold of him and put a gun to his head and said, are you the Messiah? He said, no. So he converted to Islam, and so he's not the Messiah. Anyway, so throughout history, we've had the false messiahs. Actually, back 2,000 years ago, in about 135, there was a man, there was a great, it was the second great Jewish revolt. The first revolt is what we call 70 CE, common era 70, or actually 67 when it began, 66 it began. And then there's the second revolt of Jewish people against Rome, which took place in about 132 to 135. It's what we call the Bar Kokhba rebellion against Rome. Bar Kokhba was a, a Jewish warrior. He led the, the fight against the Romans and the great rabbi at that time, one of the greatest rabbis to ever live is called Akiva, Rabbi Akiva. He proclaimed Bar Kokhba the Messiah. Of course, Bar Kokhba was killed. He was not the Messiah. My question to our Jewish people is that you proclaim Rabbi Akiva as a great rabbi, but he proclaimed a false Messiah. You should be angry with Akiva because he proclaimed a false Messiah. But of course, they lift him up. So, Many false messiahs. The question we want to tell you today is, how do we recognize who the Messiah is? Um, follow along with me in uh, John chapter 4. John chapter 4. How do we recognize him? Listen, all of a sudden, all of a sudden in history, 2,000 years ago, Jewish community was going on. You have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, you have all the different sects of Jewish Judaism at that time. A lot of different sects of Judaism. The Essenes, uh, the Qumran community. And all of a sudden, there was a man in the midst of Israel. Walking in the land, just out of nowhere. And a man starts saying things like this. John chapter 4. A woman speaking to this man in what we call present day, uh, the present day um, Samaria, Gal uh, Judah and Samaria. I don't say the occupied territory because it's not occupied. That's what they try to say. It's not Israel's. I talk, talk about Judea and Samaria. That's what it is in the land of Israel. It's not part, don't say the West Bank, because that's showing that the Jewish people don't really own it. They do own it. They've always had it. But in that area, in that area, the woman, a woman came and said to Yeshua, says, I know the Messiah is coming. Now, this, the whole background is a little conversation is going on. In, the, in Israel, between Yeshua and this woman. And the woman says, I know Messiah is coming. You sound like, you know, a very intelligent man. So Yeshua says, he who is called the anointed one, that she said, I know Messiah is coming, the one who's called the anointed one. Same word, anointed Messiah. When that one comes, he will declare to us everything. We'll know he's the Messiah. Yeshua spoke to her and said, I who speak to you, I am him. This, this, this phrase kills me. It's just incredible. Because you go, you know, in the hustle and bustle of L.A. and New York, and, you know, there's so many people. If I was the Messiah, I would not do what Yeshua did. 
it, it, you know, and it's a good thing I'm not the Messiah. So this is so strange. Just, this is so strange. If you're the Messiah, I'm coming in power. And I want everyone to see me. But instead, when you walk through the land of Israel and there's nothing, there's desert and there's nothing. And all of a sudden, a man is sitting by a well somewhere in Samaria. Nobody's there except this lone woman. And he tells her, I'm the Messiah. What kind of way is that to reveal yourself? And, you know, when you think about it, if you trace it, it's amazing because the Lord works that way in small little ways. You just think in the land of Israel and God reveals it with a still small voice to somebody. Say, Lord, tell the world. What are you telling this one servant to slay this woman? I'm the Messiah. It's the way the Lord spreads the word. He does everything the opposite of you. And everything that he says, I'm the Messiah. John chapter six, Yeshua is talking to some Jewish people here. Therefore, they said to him, what shall we do that we might please God? That we might do the works of God. Yeshua answered and said to them, this is God's work. Here it is. This is what God wants you to do. Believe on him whom God has sent. That's simple. You mean that's what God wants? Yeah. Believe on a Messiah whom God sent. Yeshua said to them, I am the bread of life. He's referring to himself as the manna that came out of heaven to save the Jewish people in the wilderness for 40 years. He said, that manna saved our people. They stayed alive 40 years in the wilderness. Yeshua says, but I'm the real manna. You accept me and you live forever. Who do you think you are? That's what they said to him. And he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. John 8. This man walking in Israel. Therefore, I say to you that you will die in your sins unless you believe I'm the one. I'm the answer. I'm the Messiah. I'm the king. I'm your atonement. I'm your forgiveness. Unless you believe it's me, you're lost. What an arrogant person he must have been. Or he was so humble. They told the truth that he was the answer to life. Your father Abraham rejoiced when he saw me. What he means is when Abraham died, he saw Yeshua. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jewish people said, wait a second. You're not even 50 years old. Yet you've seen Abraham. He lived 2,000 years ago. Yeshua says to them, truly, truly, verily, verily, really, really. I say to you, before Abraham was born, I always existed. Abraham saw me when he passed away. John 5. You Jewish people, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. You search the scriptures, you think studying this is give you an eternal life? He says, these scriptures that you're reading speak about me. See, the Bible, the old covenant, should direct you to Yeshua. The old covenant, the Jewish scriptures, the Tanakh, should point you in the direction of the Messiah. He says, do, you not, do not think that I accuse you before my father. The one who accuses you is Moses. Oh, no, wait a second. That's the one they set their hope. In whom you've set your hope. You believe in Moses. You believe this? Moses told me. So you should believe in me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote all about me in the Torah. You see, when my Jewish people have trouble with me believing in Yeshua, and they say it's not Jewish, they say, we believe in Moses. I mean, in theory, you could say, no, you don't. No, you don't. If you believed in Moses, you have to believe in Yeshua. Because Moses spoke about me. It's in the Bible. It's in the scriptures. But most Jews just, nah, nah, it's okay. It's a, it's a holy book. Not, not for me. I want to believe what I want to believe. I want to live the way I want to live. Moses spoke about me. But if you do not believe Moses' writings, how will you believe my words too? You see, this common man who walked in Jerusalem was the Messiah. He claimed to be the Messiah. But 
He didn't fit their picture. He wasn't what we expected. He went against all their traditional beliefs. And listen carefully, God always does that. To challenge you. To make you think you're going, God's... You? That's God. That's what he does. He didn't fit the picture. He wasn't what we expected. And like I like to say on this Jewish holiday, because he came on a donkey, not a horse. The power of the great king, the son of David, was supposed to come on a horse, not on a donkey. So... Follow along with me or fill it in here. He wasn't what we expected. Fill, fill this in. And I speak to all of you to educate and teach you, to encourage you, to exhort you, to serve God. But any of you today who don't know the Lord, you've never accepted Yeshua. You're doubting. You like it here because you like the music. Me, you could live without. But you do like what's going on. So, but I challenge you. Listen to the word of God and you judge for yourselves. Who is the Messiah? How would I know him? Fill it in. Knowing what to expect, knowing what to expect should cause us, will cause us to believe in Yeshua and we should live our lives for him. Now, I want to take you through a study that I just love thinking about because it's one of my favorite topics of going through the scriptures. These portions, as we've been doing in our Jewish evangelism seminar, show us who the Messiah is, what to expect. But it's the unexpected Messiah. It's not the common ones that Jewish people think about. These are the uncommon ones. So fill it in and let's follow along. First, the Messiah. How would we recognize him? What's to expect? First things that we, we see in the scriptures. The Messiah out of nowhere would just appear. You say, wait a second, come on. That's not the way I would do it. I'd like a grand entrance. You know, sort of like uh, in a wedding. You know, after they get married. And you all get in your seats and you're all waiting. And the band's getting ready huh? and everyone gets seated down. And all of a sudden, some big, beautiful music. The door opens and out comes first the mother and the father and the children and all that. Then we wait. Then comes out the married couple. That's the entrance I like. I, I like a big entrance. You know, my wife would rather be, you know, very quiet. I, I'm sorry. I got a big ego. So I like everyone to see me charge in and wave on a white horse and wave. But that, you know. But this seems to tell us Messiah would all of a sudden. You? Okay, that's me. Just appeared out of nowhere. Appears to a woman by a well. He appears quietly to people. Follow along. Messiah would suddenly appear. Now, the first one who writes about him is Daniel. Daniel, well, not the first one because Moses did, but Daniel speaks of the Messiah. Background quickly. Daniel wrote about the year five, anywhere from six to 550 BCE. BCE is before the common era. Jewish people do it different than the Christians. Jewish people say CE is common era after Messiah. BCE is before the common era. So Daniel wrote about 550 to 600 years before the Messiah. He wrote, and Daniel's well known. The rabbis all know and discuss about it. Daniel wrote about the times of Messiah. The people know that. Jewish community knows that. Daniel speaks of the times of Messiah. He speaks about it throughout the different chapters in his book. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 9, 10, 11, 12. He speaks of Messiah. In fact, so much so, not that the common average Jewish person, but the rabbis, unbelieving rabbis, know that Daniel spoke of the Messiah. In fact, they tell you, you're not allowed to study Daniel. Until you're 40. There's that song of Solomon. Anyway, you're not allowed to study Daniel, they tell you. And they say, because these speak about the times of Messiah. 
And you're not allowed to study the times of Messiah. So the Jewish community as a whole do not study Daniel. Rabbis tell us they speak of the times of the Messiah. The rabbis tell us that. Now, I've often told the story because I work with Shuva and Chosen People Ministries. And uh, in Chosen People Ministries, we began in 1894, Chosen People Ministries, because a rabbi by the name of Leopold Cohen came over from Hungary. And Leopold Cohen, in about 1892, 3 and 4, started studying. He started studying his Talmud. And the more he started studying his Talmud, he came to the conclusion that the Messiah must have come already. And he said, I, and he said, I must study Daniel. But they said, you can't study Daniel because that's what speaks about the times of Messiah. And they, in the Talmud, it says, if you study Daniel, your bones will blow up. This rabbi said, but the person who wrote that, maybe his bones didn't blow up. So he wrote about it. So he started studying Daniel. And this rabbi, Leopold Cohen, came to the conclusion that Yeshua was the Messiah. Through a whole testimony. It's a great testimony. So, so Leopold Cohen speaks. He says that he found his Messiah through, actually, uh, Daniel. So all of a sudden, the Messiah would appear. Follow along with me. Daniel speaks about uh, the coming of the Messiah, that he would suddenly appear. But Daniel also presents the Messiah. He presents the Messiah's arrival. And I like specifically looking with me at Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, and just to let you know when that was, uh, Nebuchadnezzar took the Jewish people out of the land of Israel, took them to Babylon about 605. He did three, three uh, exits from Israel. 605, 597, and 586. He came back three times, Nebuchadnezzar, and just fin- in five, 586, he finally leveled the land, leveled the temple, took all the Jewish people out of the land. So he took them captive. Starting in about 605, he took them captive. Now, Daniel's writing, and he says, in the first year of Darius. This is almost 70 years later from the first captivity of 605 when he took them out. Actually, it's about 67 years later that he's writing. Because now, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians are no longer in control. Now it's the Medes and the Persians. And Daniel writes, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, uh, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet. Now you have to understand. Nebuchadnezzar came about 605. This is almost 70 years later. Uh, Daniel's in his study, studying Jeremiah. And he says in Jeremiah, chapter 25, I think it's verse 10 or 11, and it says, the Jewish people will be taken out of the land for 70 years. And Daniel's reading this and goes, 67 years. We're going back. Daniel's all excited. That's chapter 9. And he starts praying, Lord, is it true? We're going back in a year or two. You're going to bring us back some amazing way? And he did. All of a sudden, the new king came on by the name of Cyrus, who said, Jewish people, go back. He let him go back to Israel. So Daniel's reading Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11. He says that Jeremiah, the prophet of the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. It's a prediction. So I gave my attention to the Lord to seek by prayer, supplications, with fasting, sacrament. He prayed. And he says the whole chapter 9 is his prayer. Verse 19. He says, oh, Lord, hear me. Oh, Lord, please forgive our people. Oh, Lord, listen and take action. This is the time you're going to do it. Fulfill your promise. For your own sake, oh my God, do not delay because of your city, Jerusalem. Your people, Israel, are called by your name. So it says, God, or the angel, he gave me instruction. He talked with me and he said, oh, Daniel, I've now come forth to give you insight and understanding. So Daniel knows we're going back. 
Daniel starts praying, and the angel speaks to Daniel. You're praying, let me give you insight. This is what's taking place in Daniel's study. Verse 23. At the beginning of your supplications, your prayers, Daniel, the command was issued, was issued, and I've come to tell you. Daniel starts praying. God told the angel, Gabriel, I think it was, he says, go talk to that man down here. Tell Daniel all that's going to happen. And he says, the command was issued, and I've come to tell you. I love that next phrase. It may be true of all of us. The angel said, for you are highly esteemed. Could preach on an hour just on that. But may we all be highly esteemed in God's sight in our lifetime. So God gave heed. So give heed to the message. Gain understanding of the vision. Now, God is going to give a vision, speak to Daniel, and tell him what's going to happen to the Jewish people in the future. In fact, when I talk to the rabbis about Daniel, they go, yeah, well, you know about Daniel. I go, no, what about him? They say, well, he was a little touched. They, you know, they, they, because Daniel sees things that are not yet. Daniel predicts things. Verse 24, tremendous passage. Seventy weeks have been determined, decreed for your people, Israel, and your city, Jerusalem. God is really telling him here that I'm going to deal with the Jewish people for another 70 weeks. Now, the word really, and we don't have time to study it, seven in Hebrew could be seven days, which would be seven uh, a week, 70 times, or seven, the week could be seven years. In this context, it's seven years. And there's a whole study on that. But so what God is telling Daniel is, I'm going to deal with our people for another 70 years. Seventy sevens. That's what it really says here in the passage, chapter, verse 24. Seventy sevens is what it really is translated. Have been decreed for your people and the city. This is what's going to happen at the end of those 70 years, or, which really turns out to be 490. I will finish all transgression. No more sin in Israel. I'll make an end of sin, make an atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. I'm going to deal with the Jewish people for a week, a week, a week, a week. How many? How many years? Good. Thought you were going to take out your calculators. Good. Okay. Verse 25. So, Daniel, listen carefully. Know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Well, there was a number of decrees made by Cyrus and Artaxerxes and a number of different kings. At that time, there was a lot of decrees made. Decrees to go back to Israel. Go back to Israel and rebuild your temple. But only one decree says, go back to Israel, build the walls around Jerusalem, which if you go with me, we'll walk on the walls of Jerusalem. Go walk on the walls of Jerusalem, build the walls of Jerusalem, build the temple. Only one decree. That decree was made, and we see the, the allowance for that decree. It's not important in Nehemiah chapter 2 to Nehemiah. And that decree was made on Nisan 1, which means nothing to most people, which is really March 5th. 444 BCE. Daniel, I believe, is one of the most accurate prophecies in all the Bible. I believe he pinpoints tomorrow. Palm Shabbat, Palm Sunday. Go, start your counting for your 70 weeks to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's when it starts. God's timepiece for Israel. 444 BC. But then he says, here's the time. From then till, until Messiah the Prince. Till the Messiah, the anointed one, the king of Israel is presented to Israel. He says, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Does anyone know how many weeks that is? 483 or 69 weeks. Don't ask me about that last 70th week. I'll talk to you about that some other time. The last week, right here it just says, from the decree 444 BCE 
until the Messiah comes, there will be 483 years. And I believe it says, until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven and 62 weeks. If you count that, some people get into the count. It actually comes out to Nisan 10 or March 30th, 33 CE. I believe God pinpointed the day Yeshua would come in with people waving palms, putting him on the ground, and the king of Israel would come riding into Jerusalem. You go with me, we walk down the road. That probably Yeshua did. Actually, I know exactly where it is. I know where the donkey went. But anyway, so, until uh, the Messiah came, God keeps his promises. All of a sudden, Messiah, Daniel tells us. Question is, well, the thought is, we can trust God to keep his plans and his promises. But the question is, how was he going to do it? I would do it with flashing lights. I would let the whole world see it. I believe when he comes back, the whole world will see it. But not the first time. Because he didn't come on a horse. He came on a donkey. How would God present Messiah? Well, follow along. Fill it in. Roman numeral two. First, he would, number one, he'd appear suddenly. Second, Messiah would become very humble. That's Messiah's presentation. He will come in humility and meekness as a servant. Not what the Jewish people expected, but opposite of what we wanted. One of the major objections to our faith, Jewish people look at me all the time. Whenever I talk about Messiah, one of the major objections is no world peace. We're supposed to have world peace. There is no world peace. That is a major Jewish objection. Well, the Bible does teach us that the Messiah would come twice. The first time to give you inner peace. The second time to bring world peace. It shows that, and we're going to look at that in a minute. He's not what we expected. He didn't come in glory and power. He didn't bring world peace. He came on a, not on a horse, but on a donkey. Now, what's very interesting, I want to tell you, because... This is for you to know. And most Jewish people growing up, me, I didn't know this. Most Jewish people do not know this. I'd say 90, 95% of Jewish people do not know this. The rabbis do know this. In rabbinical thinking, Jewish thinking, there are two messiahs. This is not messianic. This is Jewish unsaved Jewish people. They say there's two messiahs. What they mean is that they see the son of David coming in power, glory on a white horse to bring peace, the son of David throughout the whole world. They see that. But the Jewish rabbis and the leaders have made up a second Messiah. Not made it up. They say there's another Messiah in the Bible. And they say this Messiah, he seems humble. He's not on a horse. He's going to suffer. The Talmud speaks about the leprous one, the servant who was going to come. He seems to be the Messiah. They say this Messiah, he's not important. It's as we know there is. But where do they get it from? They get it from Zechariah 9. They get it from Isaiah 53. They get it from different passages. But this is my question to them. How do you come up with two messiahs? They say, well, it's clear. The Bible teaches us a a messiah is going to come who suffers, who we might not recognize. They see it. They said, but then there's another messiah. I said, you're missing it. There's one messiah. He will come the first time and suffer. He will come the second time in power and glory. The Jewish people know that. But they don't realize it's only one Messiah. Follow along with me. Messiah. Zechariah speaks of it. Fill it in. Zechariah reveals the Messiah's humility. Jewish people do not like when they talk about the Messiah coming in humility. They want to see power and glory. But remember what I always tell you. God does opposite of what you and I think. That's God's style. You can't figure him out. Don't ever try to figure him out. Zechariah 9. Great little passage. Zechariah 9, first couple verses, is telling us a king is coming 
A king is coming who will destroy power and come and rule the world at that time. A king is coming. He will knock down all the nations. A great king is coming, and he will kill all the nations. And there's a contrast here in Zechariah 9. There is a king who is coming, and he will destroy everything. But then there's another king coming, and he will save. That's what Zechariah 9. Follow along, Zechariah 9. The burden, that's the vision of the Lord. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, which is Syria. Damascus, with Damascus, Damascus as resting place. A king is going to come and going to conquer and destroy. And uh, for the eyes of man, especially all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord, but not toward this king. Hamath also, uh, uh, and also Hamath, which borders on it, Tyre and Lebanon, that is prob- uh, Tyre and Syria, and that's Lebanon. Though they are very wise, so the, this king is coming, he's going to conquer Syria, he's going to conquer Lebanon. And it says, For Tyre built herself on a fortress and piled up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Tyre was famous at that time. But a king is coming to level them. Chapter 9, verse 4. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her. All the nations came to Tyre and Sidon. They traded. They were the great merchants of the world, Tyre and Sidon. But there's somebody coming to dispossess her. Cast her wealth into the sea. And she will be consumed by fire. Now, History knows who did that. Tyre escaped Nebuchadnezzar and went to an island. And 200 years later, a king by the name of Alexander the Great came. And he scraped Tyre bare on the land in Lebanon. And he threw all their wealth into the sea, built a causeway, went over to the island and destroyed Tyre. History tells us Alexander the Great did it. This passage is comparing two kings, a prideful arrogant, powerful king who will destroy everybody, everyone in its sight. That's Alexander the Great. It says, verse 5, Ashkelon, we'll see it. The land of Israel. The land of uh, modern-day Gaza. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza, too, will writhe in great pain. Also, Ekron, for her expectation has been confounded. Moreover, the king, this king who's ever coming, we know him as Alexander, will, uh, the king will uh, perish from Gaza and Ashkelon and will not be in, uh, will not be, Ashkelon will not be inhabited. Zechariah 9, verse 6. And a mongrel race, uh, the Greeks, will dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. They will also be like a remnant for our God and be like a clan in Judah and Ekron, like, uh, like a Jebusite. So this king is going to cause all kinds of destruction. And then he goes, he switches now, Zechariah. But I, God, I will encamp around my house. While everyone's being destroyed, all around, Syria and Lebanon and Gaza and the whole area, everyone's being destroyed by Alexander the Great and Nebuchadnezzar before him. While all of them, God says, ah, not so for my people. I will save my people. That's what Zechariah 9 is trying to tell us. I will, dis, uh, Zechariah, I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and he returns. No oppressor, nobody's going to come on my people. We'll pass over them anymore. For now I have seen with my eyes. Rejoice, Jewish people. Rejoice, Israel. You are safe. That's good news. You are safe. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout and triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Great. Our king is coming. Our proud king on a white horse to deliver the Jewish people and conquer the world. That's what the disciples, when they came to Yeshua, they said, is it this time you're going to kill Rome, knock off Rome, and we'll, we'll reign with you now? Yeshua says, you don't understand what you're talking about. 
I'm the Messiah, but you got it all wrong. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of uh, Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Good. He's just. Oh, I know he's just and righteous. He's endowed with salvation. Good, deliverance, salvation. He is, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't like that word, humble. I don't want my, my Messiah to be humble and meek and bow down. I want him to conquer the world. Our Messiah is coming. He's going to conquer. He's going to save Israel, but he's humble. He's mounted on a donkey. No, no, no. It's supposed to be a horse. Even on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. See, Zechariah tells us when Messiah comes, in a sense, we won't recognize him. Daniel says he'll just appear. And in a sense, the Jewish people will look at him and say, you? You're the Messiah? Too humble. Too meek. 550 years later, a Jewish boy by the name of Levi, and he writes, maybe 600 years later, Levi writes these words in the book of Matthew, chapter 21, 600 years later. And he says, when they approached, when they had approached Jerusalem and they came from Bethpage, this is tomorrow. On the Mount of Olives, then Yeshua sent two of his disciples. Now, I do want to, you know, people always say, when you go to Israel, it's like the Bible comes alive. It is. It really is. When they came from Bethpage and they came down the Mount of Olives, when you go for the first time, you're going to stand right there. You're going to say, this is it. I'm standing here. This is what he's talking about. Mount of Olives. Yeah, you're right there. When he says he went down the road, you're going to go right down the road. Same road. Except now it's paved. Maybe a little better than they have it paved. Maybe not. Rome did a pretty good job. Anyway, so it says, saying to them, they came down the Mount of Olives, Yeshua and his disciples, they said, go into, Yeshua says, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you're going to find a donkey there. Tied with a colt, untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord is need of them, and immediately he will send them. Matthew continues to write, this took place to fulfill the words which were spoken by the prophet 600 years before 550 years before. Look what it says. Matthew 21, 5. We just read it. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fowl of a beast of burden. This is incredible in their time. As they see Yeshua coming, they say, wait a second. Our prophet Zechariah said today would happen. I think Daniel 9, Zechariah 9 are two of the greatest prophecies in all the Bible to actually tell us the day, the time Messiah is going to appear. And it says, the disciples went and did just as Yeshua had instructed them. And they brought the donkey, the colt, and their coats laid on. They sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road. And uh, others were cutting branches from the trees, spreading them in the road. Palm Sunday, just putting all the palms down. It says, the crowds are going ahead of him. And those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna. Oh, I know, I'm, I'm sorry, Steve. I'm, I'm offending you now, I know. But, you know, they sang Hosanna, which means save us. And, you know, really, literally it means save us. But you know what they really were saying? It really means praise the Lord. That's what they're saying. Or save us, or they were really singing a praise to God. And it says Hosanna. Where was it? What verse am I on? Help me. Good. Okay. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem and all the city was stirred. Who is this? I saw him walking around Jerusalem. It's ridiculous. This guy, he's the king. It's amazing to think that king is actually God in the flesh, riding on a donkey. When he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Yeshua from Nazareth 
in Galilee. You see, Matthew is telling us the fulfillment of that prediction of the Messiah, that he was going to come humble. And I'd like to stop for a minute and just say, what did he teach us? Listen carefully. As believers, God taught this. Humility and service. That's what Yeshua's first coming is all about. Listen carefully. Not knowledge. The Bible says this. Knowledge puffs you up. Knowledge puffs you up and you think you're better and know more than everybody. If God really speaks to you, you learn to listen, not to blurt out. You learn to be humble and meek and serve everybody. You say, but I know so much. If you're humble, you shut up. The Rabbi Saul, the Apostle Paul, can you imagine being brought up to heaven seeing the Lord face to face, and God speaks to you. You know what I would come back and tell you about that? You couldn't shut me up. He came back and God says, not out of sight. Knowledge pops up. Yeshua taught us humility. When you think you know, most likely you don't. Arrogance comes from knowledge. Yeshua taught humility and service. The greatest, I believe probably the greatest passage in the whole Bible speaks about Yeshua's humility. The greatest passage. He will come and conquer and be, reign forever and ever. Philippians chapter 2, one of the greatest passages in all the Bible taught humility. Rabbi Saul teaches us this. He says, don't, don't do anything from selfishness or empty conceit. Real quickly, I'm sorry. Background to this is in the town of Philippi, there was tension in the congregation. Two women actually were having problems. And they were causing divisions. And Paul writes this letter and says, peace. Come on, work together here. That's really what it's all about. People think the book of Philippians is about joy. It's really not. It's about unity in the faith between two people that were causing problems in the congregation. And then the second thing of that byproduct is if you unify, you will have joy. But it's really about unifying. And he says, do nothing from selfish empty But humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Don't look out. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests. That's what I say. Never think of yourself. Never think of your personal gain. Give everything up. Listen, the, the secret, I'll tell you, to spiritual life is want nothing, desire nothing but him. And God will bless you and meet your needs. He will place you where he wants. Don't look out for yourselves, but also look out for the interests of everybody else. That's a true spiritual person. That's our Messiah. That's what he did. He always thought of everybody else, not himself. Because he entrusted himself to a faithful God who could do all things. And he says, and then Paul gives the greatest illustration in, in the whole Bible. He's saying, he's telling us how to behave toward each other. He says, now let me give you a little illustration about that. Verse five, have the same attitude in you, which was also in the Messiah. This is how I want you to live your life. Verse six, he, although he existed in the form of God, listen carefully. I know you don't understand this. A lot of people don't understand it, but the phrase he existed in the form of God literally means he was God himself, not the son of God, not junior, not someone who came after, not a, a king and a charismatic person who existed in the very essence and nature of God, the father. He wasn't God, the father. He was the same as that's what the phrase really means. He existed as God always, always in eternity. God himself. 
In eternity, it was always God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He existed as God. He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. didn't have to hold on to it. You don't have to hold on to your position. You don't have to let everybody know how important you are. Never. Never. But instead, he emptied himself. Now, I could tell you this little phrase, emptied himself. Yeah, what's that mean? Let me tell you, 2,000 years, the scholars have argued and fought over that phrase. He emptied himself. What does that mean, he emptied himself? Listen carefully. God can't stop being God. So Yeshua can never stop being God. So they come up with ideas. No one's 100% sure what that means. But it means when Yeshua emptied himself, some people say, well, he voluntarily gave up the use of his omniscience, his omnipresence, his powers, and his deity. He voluntarily set them aside. Still had them. Gave it up. Yeah, it's a thought. Something else emptied himself. He said, maybe it means he lowered himself to be like me and you. Could be. He emptied himself. They guess. I like that there's one of the hymns that say he emptied himself of all but love. It's nonsense. He can't. He can't empty himself. He can't stop being who he is. So we're not sure. But it does mean some kind of condescension. He didn't hold on to being God. He emptied himself. Taking on us. The form. Now that, that itself is very humbling. God became us. Now that's very, very humbling. It's like you and me becoming a bad person on the streets of New York or in L.A. Nah, maybe becoming like an animal. Nah, maybe becoming like an ant. Nah, maybe becoming like a protozoa. Anyway, that's what it is. We can't even conceive of how low he became. Becoming like one of us. One of his creatures. The eternal creator. He became like us. Being made in the likeness of man. Just like us. He looked like us. He acted like us. And yet the amazing thing, he was God. Amazing. Then he being found in the appearance of man. If that's not bad enough to be like you and me, he humbled himself more. He became obedient to the point of death, suffering at the hands of mankind. Not only that, but death on a cross. The most humiliating, excruciating, worst kind of death anyone could have. Being totally humiliated. Listen carefully. You know the pictures? He died on the hill of Calvary. There was no hill. I saw the hill. I see the three crosses all the time. There's no hill. Maybe in the background there's a quarry. But he wasn't up there. He was on the street. Right by the road. So when you walk by him, he was right there. They mocked him. As he hung on the cross. That's what it is. He became obedient, not just to death, but mocking, scourging, humiliation. The king of the universe. That's what Paul is doing here, telling us, be like him. Being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself to the point, uh, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What was he teaching? You know, at Passover coming up next week, the Jewish mother comes out with a little bowl of water and the father washes his hands. At Passover, Yeshua sat there 2,000 years ago with the disciples. And the servant's supposed to come in with a bowl of water. The servant didn't come in. The king of Israel, the Messiah, the anointed one, the ruler of the universe, the creator of heavens and earth. He took the towel. He took the bowl. He got on his knees. And he washed their feet. That's what we need to do. Wash each other's feet. Not literally. Although one church I once spoke at, they had us down there. 
washing feet. They said, I didn't have to do it. I, I wanted the experience. I'll tell you. It was one thing to wash someone else's feet. It's much worse to have them wash your feet. Trust me on this one. Very, very humbling. Yeshua got up and washed their feet. And he said, I want you to do like me. I don't think wash the feet, although it's fine if you want to do that. But I think he was saying, serve others like me. It's not above us to set tables, fix chairs, do the humble things. That's what we're supposed to do. Mark chapter 1045 is your verse for life, all of you. This is your philosophy of ministry. Mark 1035. The Son of Man did not come to be served. Oh, yes, Lord, we will serve you forever. He says, nope, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That's what the humility of Messiah teaches us as believers. We're to serve. We're to wash feet. We're to do good for all people. Well, surely such a wonderful, kind, loving Messiah we'd have to receive. The Bible says, no, we wouldn't. Because we're expecting the wrong thing. First, he'd appear. Second, we said he'd be very humble. Third, fill it in. Messiah would be rejected. When Jewish people say if he's the Messiah, wouldn't we accept him? No, you wouldn't because he wasn't supposed to. He was supposed to be rejected. Zechariah portrays the Messiah. One of my favorite passages. Very difficult passage to follow along. But follow along with me if you will. Zechariah says he'd be rejected. Zechariah portrays the Messiah's rejection. Let me tell you, one of my chapters that I've studied, I love it. Zechariah chapter 11. When you read it, very difficult chapter. Many people, me, everyone has trouble with Zechariah chapter 11. Very difficult chapter. When you get to Zechariah chapter, this is what happens. Zechariah chapter 11. Zechariah is minding his own business in his house, hut, wherever he was. And God speaks. Zechariah, yes, Lord. Listen, I want you to do something for me. I want you to put on a skit. A skit, sure, okay. Where? Well, I want you to go to Jerusalem and put on a skit for me. Let everybody see the skit. I don't really, what kind of skit? Just like we had a couple weeks ago with Purim. You know, and the, so Zachariah himself is going to be doing a one-man show. And God says, I want you to put on the robe of a shepherd. Taking on the role of a shepherd. The good shepherd caring for his people. And the Bible is filled with verses in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, about there are many false shepherds in Israel. I want you to be the real shepherd. The real shepherd is the Messiah who would shepherd and care for his people. So God says, I want you to portray the role of a shepherd of the Jewish people, watching over, protecting them. So Zechariah chapter 11, the first three verses, gives us a picture. And if you watch, uh, I think like uh, Terminator or one of those movies, or some of those movies, they begin with all of a sudden destruction. The whole world's destroyed. And you see the end results. And everything is laid in ashes and it's destroyed. Then all of a sudden, after the crash, all of a sudden, it, put, it, portray, it gives us something before that. It gives you the end result first. And then it tells you what led up to it. That's what Zechariah 11 is all about. It starts with a destruction. It starts with desolation. Chapter 11, verse 1. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that a fir may feed on your cedars, the area of Israel, Lebanon and Israel. Well, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen. Destruction is the picture. The glorious trees have been destroyed. Well, O Be oaks of Bashan, for the impenetrable forest has come down. Israel decimated, destroyed. Verse 3, there's a sound of the shepherd's wail. The Jewish people, the leaders, everyone's wailing and crying. Misery, destruction throughout the land. Their glory is ruined. The sound of young lions roar. The pride of the Jordan is ruined. Chapter 11, 1 to 3, destruction in the land. And what you want to know 
is we're going to shift back now. The movie starts. And your question is, how did it get up to that? What caused it? That's what the rest of chapter 11 is telling us. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord, my God, Zechariah, portray the role. He says, pastor of the flock, doomed to slaughter. I saw the destruction. God says, yes. Now I want you to play the role of the shepherd, the pastor, shepherd, the rabbi. Shepherd the people who are doomed. The destruction is coming. Verse 6, we read, the shepherd, he says, for lo, I will no longer, God speaks to the Jews, I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of the land. God is going to punish Israel. Don't put, listen, I love Israel. I love the Jewish people. God loves them more than I do. God has said, I'll always preserve them. But God, many, many times throughout all of history, has, has made his people, he's punished them, disciplined them, chastised them. There's another chastisement, punishment, difficulty on Israel. And he says, I won't have pity on them now. The destruction is coming, declares the Lord. But behold, I will cause the men to fall, each into another's power, the power of the king, and they will strike the land, and I will not deliver them from their power. This happened many times in Israel. The Assyrians came, Sennacherib came, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came. Many people came, destroyed Jerusalem. History after that, Titus came. Destruction of Jerusalem is common throughout history. But God has always preserved them. God tells them now, something's going to happen. They're going to be destroyed. So the, Zechariah says, okay. So I pastored the flock. I shepherded them. And it's almost like you have a losing cause here. God tells Zechariah, shepherd them, care for them. But you're going to lose. Sort of almost, I don't know, what God has for America. We pray for America. We want to do good and try to do everything we can to get America back. Might be a losing cause. I don't know if we've gone too far. Listen, America is not the apple of Israel's eye. I'm sorry, apple of God's eye. So I don't know what God's going to do with us. But I know this shepherd, he was told, shepherd the people, even though I'm going to bring destruction. And that's what Zechariah 11 is saying. He said, so I pastured the flock, which was doomed. Hence, I afflict, uh, hence the afflicted, the Jewish people of the flock. And I took for myself two staffs, the one I called favor, the other union. So I pastored them. Two shepherds, staff, shepherds, crook, tovim. Favor, union. That's the two names. And he's walking around. Zachariah's walking around. Favor, union. What's favor mean? God favors his Jewish people. Watch over them. Protect them. Union, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to break them up, break up the union. But I'm shepherding him with the two. That's the shepherd. And he says, and I shepherd the flock. Verse 9. Then I said, it's too late. The shepherd's going to say at some point, too late. I'm not going to shepherd you anymore. I'm not going to keep extending myself. I'm not going to keep reaching out. But I have to bring the destruction on my people. It will happen. That's what verse 9 is saying. He said, so uh, I will not pastor you. What is to die, you're going to die. What is to be annihilated, I'm sorry, Israel. It's going to happen. The destruction's coming. And let those who are left eat one another's flesh, a picture of destruction in the land. So I took my staff favor and I cut it in pieces. Didn't cut it in pieces. The picture there is he took the shepherd and everyone's looking, and all of Israel and all the, the kings and the priests and everybody there. And uh, Zechariah takes uni- uh, favor, God's favor. <laughs> That's what he did. Broke it. What do you mean? God's going to discipline his people. He always loves his people. Always will. Always bring them back. But here he's going to destroy them. Destruction. I took my staff favor, cut it in pieces, and uh, to break my covenant, not his eternal covenant, his covenant of giving them favor at that moment. 
It's not his eternal covenant. You always have to understand a word in its context. It's always dangerous to say one word is always the same everywhere. That's where people get into wrong interpretations of the Bible. They think they see one word and they trace it all over the, and all of a sudden they know everything. They don't know anything. Because a word speaks in its context. And your false, false uh, teachers take the one word and they, they trace it. As I've traced it everywhere. I got it here, 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 here. They blitzkrieg you and you don't know if you're coming or going. They don't know what the word means. Because words mean different in different contexts all the time. I say, look at that bull. You know what I'm talking about. I say, you're a bull. It's different. That's people get in trouble when they interpret the Bible. Listen to false teachers all the time. And he said, where was I? Good. Uh, so, um, I broke my covenant. So, I bro- uh, so, it was broken on that day, and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me, they understood what I meant. They understood. God is going to discipline his people. So, okay, come on, let's get to why you're ready. All right. Verse 12, the shepherd says, I said to them, listen, I ministered to you. I took care of you. I shepherded you. I told you the ways of God. If you like my ministry, if you like what I'm doing, respond. Yeshua said to the Jewish people, respond. Follow me. Obey me. Walk with me. Do what I tell you. If it's good, that's my wages. My wages up here is having people say, and I hear it all the time. You know, because of you, they say, I read the Bible. That's all I want to hear. Because of you, I'm witnessing. That's, that's the greatest wages I could ever ask for, to tell you the truth. That people would walk according to God's ways, not mine. If it's good, give me my wages, the prophet said, the shepherd says. If not, okay, go your way. You don't want to follow me, that's fine. So they weighed out for me 30 shekels of silver as my wages. What is he talking about? This shepherd. He's playing the role of the good shepherd and Yeshua is valued at 30 pieces of silver. That's what the nation of Israel valued their Messiah when they sold him to Judas for 30 pieces of silver. That's what it's talking about. The destruction is coming because our people rejected their Messiah. Not an eternal punishment. It was actually 70 CE, the destruction of Titus and the destruction of Jerusalem through Titus. They weighed out for me what they valued me at, 30 pieces of silver. And then if you want to have an example of sarcasm in the Bible, here it is, verse 13. The Lord said, then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price. That's exaggeration. See, the Bible does speak in exaggeration. It wasn't a magnificent price. It was a humiliating price. Throw it to the potter's field, and that's what took place, at which I was valued by them. So I took 30 pieces of shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. That's what it says. Our Jewish people would value him. Messiah, fill it in. Messiah's work should be valued by you and me. We should not give 30 shekels of silver, but he is your first love. You should give him your finances. You should give him your prayer. You should witness and share. You should find out what your place is in this body of Messiah and humbly serve God. It's not enough to come here on a Saturday. It's not enough to go to a Bible study. You should be serving. What do you value your salvation? What do you value the Messiah as? Study the word of God. Obey him. How do you show how you value him? Well, we move on. If he would be rejected, then... 
What would happen? Fill it in. Number four, I think we're up to. Number four, the Messiah would die before 70 say we knew this we looked at this in uh in the messianic prophecy daniel predicts the messiah's death follow along daniel predicts the messiah's death daniel predicts it when he would die follow along in daniel chapter 9 we saw this before a little bit so you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild jerusalem does anybody know when the decree was made to restore and rebuild jerusalem anybody in this room today Okay, come on. March 5th, 444 B.C. That's when they said to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. We said, I told you that before, a couple minutes ago. Okay. And some of you are saying, you told me so long ago, I forgot. But anyway, um, from the issuing decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince. That's Palm Sunday. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks from Artaxerxes' decree to the Messiah's presented on Palm, uh, Palm Shabbat. Then after that, after this 483 years, after he's presented as the king, sometime afterwards, then it tells us what would take place with the Messiah. He's presented as the king. Good. What's going to happen next? It tells us. Then after that time, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait. That means he's going to die. That's the order. The decree, 483 years later, Messiah is presented. Then after that, they reject him, according to Zechariah chapter 11. Then he dies. Messiah dies. That's it. Messiah dies. And he says, then the Messiah will be cut off. First he's presented. Then sometime after he died. Daniel tells us when. He would have to die before the destruction of the Jewish temple. When he died, the temple was still standing. The verse goes on in chapter 926. But the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. We know when that was. We know exactly when that was today. Back then they didn't. It says the people of the prince, Rome came. After Messiah was presented as king, afterwards he died. Then the people of the prince, Rome, will come. Now what took place, somewhere around uh, 70, 69, 70, at that point, uh, some, a king of Rome came and surrounded Jerusalem. King was the name of Vespasian. He came, was over, put a siege wall around Jerusalem. No one could come in, no one could go out. Vespasian was going to destroy Israel. And sometime at that point, the emperor died and Vespasian was called back to Rome. And he went back to Rome and they lifted the siege and the Jewish people in Jerusalem rejoice. We're safe. Everything's good. We're delivered. They're not coming back. And some of the people say, oh, no, they're coming back. Vespasian takes over as emperor in Rome. And he says to his son, Titus, go back, finish the job. Rome and Titus came back, surrounded Jerusalem. And they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 70 CE. But the order, the decree, the king, his death, and then the destruction of the temple. And it says, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come like a flood. It will be destruction in Jerusalem. You know what's so amazing is in 1967 when Israel captured their land and the, the temple site there and they started digging down and down and down and all of a sudden they found a big stone and they found some bigger stones they found some bigger stones yet if you go with me we walk on the street where rome was walk on the very streets nothing's changed the streets are still there not only that you see giant boulders in the street the st streets caved in that's what rome threw over the wall landed in there broke the pavement it's still there to this day 
you'll walk on the stones. Incredible sight. It was totally destroyed. That's what it says when he'd come and destroyed. Now, a lot of people at that point discuss who killed the Messiah. I hear it all the time. The Jews. Those Jews. They, they killed him. I like David Hawking. He says, don't blame the Jews. Blame the Italians. They killed him. I didn't, I'm David. So I didn't say it. Everyone says, who killed him? Then you say, oh, we all killed him. That's nice. That's nice. Listen, nobody killed Messiah. I think you're off here. Nobody killed him. He came to die. That was his purpose. He came to Israel, to his people, to do a ministry and die for the sins of the world. I love reading in the Gospels. I love seeing in the move. Well, I can't. It's too rough. But the, the passion. I love seeing Yeshua stand there. And everyone around him in panic. And everyone confused. And Yeshua standing like this. Just waiting. I always tell. If I was there, if I was like Peter, I said, quick, Yeshua, let's get out of here. Quick, they're coming, they're coming. And he said, calm down, Peter. Calm down. But, but you're standing there. Well, is something wrong with you? He came. I just love that. I love when Pilate looks at Yeshua. He says, don't you realize who I am? I have all power here. I can release you. I can kill you. I have all power. And Yeshua standing there like this. After being whipped with a scourge, with the, the, the whips, with a piece of stone and metal and iron in it, and whipped and destroyed, and hair pulled out, and blood all over the place. And Pilate says, I can let you go. I have all power. And this humble man stands and goes, you have no power at all. What kind of statement is that? He had no power. He had all power. He had no power. Yeshua came. Pilate fit right into Yeshua's plan. That's why he came. Not who killed him. He came to die. That's what Isaiah says. Fill it in here. Messiah would be our atonement. That's why he came. The exchange of life principle is found in the book of Isaiah. Everyone look up here for a minute. Leviticus chapter... Uh, Leviticus... Moses tells the Jewish people, you're going to sin, you're going to do wrong, you're going to make mistakes. This is what you do, Israel. When you do wrong, you come to the temple, you come before God, tell them you did wrong, there's got to be a payment for it. You take that sheep, that innocent little lamb and goat, put your hand on the animal and slice its throat and let the blood drain. And think to yourself, that's what you deserve. But instead, I'm exchanging. I'm giving you the lamb's life, and you're giving the lamb death. Exchange of life. That's what it was all about. That's what Yeshua, the Lamb of God, did for us. He gave us his life, and we gave him our death. Pretty good deal for us. But he'll be rejoicing with us as he's resurrected for all eternity. It's the exchange of life principle. You see it in Isaiah, that great chapter that changed the lives of millions of Jewish people. Millions, I believe. Many, many thousands. That's what our campaign that we just did up at Biola last week, it was so beautiful, which uh, with Mitch Glazer and chosen people did. All of L.A. I don't know if you've seen it. you got to look up Isaiah53.com. That's the chapter. It's on billboards, giant billboards all over L.A. Picture Jewish people walking around. What is that? Oh, it's all over. 
It's on the internet. It's on television. It's ads. Isaiah 53. What's Isaiah 53? Where is it? Who is it? I'm telling you, all of LA is talking about what took place all of the month of March. We had it all over there. It's all you see everywhere. Jewish people are going to read Isaiah 53, as I did 41, 42 years ago. You know what they're going to read? They're going to read this. Isaiah 53. This is what they're going to read. He was, the, and you don't have to say who it is. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised. And we, the Jewish people, we didn't esteem him. We didn't think much of him. Surely Jewish people's griefs he would bear. Our sorrows he carried. We ourselves esteem him stricken of, smitten of God and afflicted. Everyone knows who you're writing about. Then 53.5 is what I read back in 1971. But he was pierced through. You don't have to say a word. Every time I've ever read it to a Jewish person, they know exactly who I'm talking about. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for my sins. The punishment, chastisement of our well-being fell upon him by his suffering, his scourging, his whipping. I'm healed. I'm made well. All of us like sheep, sheep go, wander very easily. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused all of... Listen, look, look, look. The Lord has caused all of our iniquity, look at me carefully, to fall on him. The lamb. Exchange. My sins. His death. My freedom. That's the exchange of life. Isaiah tells us that. Isaiah tells us why he came. He'd be an atonement. He's the atonement. Someone just asked me today, what about the, the people in Babylon, those who didn't have the sacrifices in the old covenant? What happens to that? Listen. The sacrifices in the old covenant never saved a person. I thought it did. It was a picture of what was going to save them. It's the heart. So that when the Daniel and, and Ezekiel and the Jewish people went to Babylon, they had the right heart. They put their trust in God. And God knew that Yeshua's sacrifice was going to cover them. Even without their sacrifice at the temple. And we read Isaiah where he speaks of the um, atonement. Isaiah 53, verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, the Jewish people, they considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people, they considered, to whom the stroke was due. But the Lord was pleased to crush Yeshua. God was pleased to crush Yeshua. Putting himself to grief. Putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he is the offering. He will see his offspring. means he will really be resurrected. He will prolong his days. He will go on and live after his death. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand as an, a result of the anguish of his soul. He will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous one, my servant, my king, my anointed one, Yeshua, the king of Israel, the hope of it, the world, the one we didn't expect, the one who came on a donkey, is the savior of the world. The anguish of his soul, he'll see it. He will justify, make righteous the many. He will bear their sins. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will be exalted. He will divide the booty with the strong because he has poured out himself to death. He was numbered with all the sinners, with me. Yet he himself bore the sin of many. He interceded for the transgressors. Exchange of life. He was atonement. So how would he die? David tells us, Messiah would suffer greatly. And I've already told you, David predicts the crucifixion. Let me ask you, anyone ever hear this phrase? Anyone, tell me if you have. Raise your hand if you have. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Raise your hand. Okay. Now I want you to call out. Tell me, who said it? Good. Now everyone says Yeshua, Jesus. He did. Who said it first? 
thousand years before. David said it, wrote a psalm, probably suffering greatly, felt, uh, felt uh, oppressed and uh, rejected by his people, and dad maybe rejected by God. And David said in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David didn't know it. You know, David was not just a king. You know, he was a musician too. Yeah, Steve would have had him on the worship team. David did good. You know what else? David was an author. He was a poet. A great pro poet. You know what else David was? He was a prophet. He predicted the glories to come. And David wrote Psalm 22. Without knowing, he wrote of the crucifixion of Messiah. Listen carefully to this fact. He wrote it in 1000 B.C.E. In 63, a thousand years later, 63 B.C.E., Rome made crucifixion the means, the official means of capital punishment in Rome. David spoke about it 1,000 years before it took place. David wrote about the crucifixion. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. I can't be saved. I won't be delivered. David describes, fill it in, David describes Messiah's death. I like, I read this passage, and we're, believe it or not, we are coming to a close. I never like to tell people that, but we are. You know my favorite movie? Anyone? Benner. Benner. Uh, yeah. And I tell you, if you haven't seen it, you go home today and watch it. You really, really, it's a tele-Messiah. It's just such a great movie. Sit there with your family. Just enjoy one of the greatest, one of the greatest, if not the greatest movie ever made. I can't stand the Titanic title for the most Academy Awards. But anyway, Titanic was good, but uh, Ben-Hur, 11 Academy Awards. But Ben-Hur is such a great story. And it's the story of Ben-Hur's interaction with Messiah his whole life. He's filled with bitterness and rage because Rome just uh, did bad things to him and he, he wants revenge. And, and sort of toward, and partially throughout his life and toward the end of uh, the, the movie, you start seeing that he has more interactions with this carpenter Supposedly carpenter. I say stonemason. But anyway. From Galilee. And he has interactions with him. And he has interactions with this follower of Yeshua. A guy named Balthazar. And Balthazar is saying, no, 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 no. Stop your revenge. It won't help you. And Ben-Hur says, I need my revenge on Rome and the evil Masala. I got to get my revenge. And finally, he starts listening more and more. And he starts starting to believe a little bit. In this man from the Galilee, man of Nazareth. So he takes his leprous mother and daughter, sister, into Jerusalem to talk to the rabbi. And he gets there in dramatic fashion at the end of the movie. And he's, nobody's in there. He says, where are they? And they said, oh, they've all gone to see the crucifixion. What do you mean? Where's the rabbi? They're killing him. And Ben-Hur in the movie runs with his mother and a sister, and he takes them, and all of a sudden he sees Yeshua dying on a cross. And he says, and he sees Balthazar, and he says, this is why he came? For this life? And Balthazar's words, no. He came for this death. That's why he came, to suffer greatly for our sins. No surprises. Messiah came for that purpose. Psalm 22, it tells us. I'm poured out like water, David wrote. This is what happens in a crucifixion. All my bones are out of joint. My heart's like wax that is melted within me. 
My strength's dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. You've laid me in the dust of death. For dogs have surround me, and evildoers have encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. It's crucifixion of the Messiah. Uh, it's amazing what really clarifies that verse, because some people have controversy over that verse. The next verse tells you. I count on my bones. They look, they stare at me. That's the cross, folks. He's pierced. You look at your hands, your body, and your bones. You're, stare, you're staring at yourself. They divide my garments. That's what took place. And for my clothing, they cast lots. He came to suffer. In Isaiah 52, verse 14, Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was more, marred more than any man, more than the sons of men. That's why he came, to suffer and die. Just fill it in here, what we said we began with. Knowing what to expect should cause us, will cause us to believe in Yeshua. That's my hope today. That some would say yes to this humble King of Israel. Knowing what to expect will cause us to believe in Yeshua and we should live our lives for Him. Fill these couple of phrases in. Because of the Messiah, because He was humble, listen carefully, we should serve Him. He taught service. That's what we need to do. Because He was humble. We need to serve him. Because Messiah came to earth, we should value him with our lives. Because Messiah suffered greatly, we should live our lives for him, not for ourselves. We should live everything for him, give up all for him. It is worth it. We strive and work. I think it's Isaiah 55. It says, you who, you, you, you work for money, for food and clothes. He says, stop it. He says, you don't have to work. You put your trust in Messiah. Yeah, sure, go out there. You need jobs. But you live your life for him. And last, fill it in very carefully. Because Yeshua is the Messiah, today, if you have never done it before, we should receive him into our heart and life today. Yeshua's words we close with. I say therefore to you, that you shall die in your sins, and I could add, separated from God for all eternity, without God, without me. Unless you believe, put your trust in, receive the Messiah, you are lost in your sins. John 1, but as many as receive him today, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Today, you can have eternal life, if you believe in the unexpected Messiah, the humble Messiah, let's all bow together for a word of prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for this unexpected hero, our unexpected Messiah. My heart's desire, my prayer today for all of us is that we would bow before you and humbly serve you. That we would value what Messiah did for us that we would follow him and obey him. And my heart's desire, my prayer today, if there's someone in this audience today who's never said yes to Yeshua, I make it very simple according to the Bible. Just say, I believe God. I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe I've sinned against you. And I believe you sent Yeshua to be my atonement, my exchange of life. I now receive him into my heart, into my life as my Messiah and Savior. For we ask all these things in Yeshua's name. Amen.
Let's all stand together. We want to bow together. We want to stand.